Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Kevin McCarthy is no longer the House Speaker. What he told us before the House vote, who voted against him and what's next for the Republican majority. The judge in Trump's New York fraud case has instated a gag order on the former president. Find out why and the latest from the courthouse. Hunter Biden back in Delaware today to face three felony counts. This is the first time a child of a sitting president is fighting criminal charges in court. The White House is pledging additional support for Ukraine. That's despite Congress omitting funding to Ukraine in the short-term government budget bill to avoid a shutdown. And indicted founder of cryptocurrency exchange FTX Sam Bankman-Fried in court today as his trial begins. How this could impact his largely democratic political connections. For the first time in U.S. history, a Speaker of the House is voted out of office. NTD's Iris Tao has more from Capitol Hill on what's next for Kevin McCarthy and the U.S. House. Iris. Good evening to you, Tiff. So in a historic vote today, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his speakership position as eight Republicans voted with all Democrats to remove him from that position. And that is shocking because it's the first time ever that happened in U.S. history. And it happened after Congressman Matt Gaze, a Republican from Florida, filed a motion to vacate on Monday night. He was complaining that the debt ceiling deal McCarthy struck with President Biden, as well as the short-term funding bill that was just passed this week to keep the government funded did not include enough spending cuts that they were demanding. And it asked Congressman Gates as well as Congressman Tim Burchett, who also voted to oust McCarthy about if they're concerned about the future of the conservative agenda as well as the future of the House GOP. Here's what they told me. Uh, I would say that the conservative agenda was being paralyzed by Speaker McCarthy. We hadn't even sent a subpoena to Hunter Biden. Our oversight was lackluster. Our spending priorities were misaligned. The best way to advance the conservative agenda is to move forward with a new speaker. I think the conservative agenda, agenda is strong as it's ever been. I mean, we just proved it right there. We've got runaway spending and we want to get control of it. And of course, now the biggest question is what's coming next. For now, Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry, which is a close ally to McCarthy, who voted against ousting McCarthy, will serve as the temporary acting House Speaker. But next, there will need to be a new House Speaker election, just like the one that unfolded in January. And actually, today, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin told me that he would actually like to get a Democratic Congressman, and that is the Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, to be the next House Speaker. Here's what I asked him. Did you or your Democratic colleagues reach out to some moderate Republicans to raise the idea that maybe a vote for Jeffries to become the Speaker? Yes, and I've already done that. I've spoken to a bunch of my Republican colleagues and I said, if you're tired of the chaos and you're tired of the dysfunction and you're, dis- you're tired of the circus show, vote for Hakeem Jeffries. He's super well organized. Well, as McCarthy just lost his job, he remained defiant. And actually, just this afternoon, right before he went into the House chamber for the votes, I asked him, would you try to stay and fight to get your gavel back? And he asked me back, do I not have it right now? 
and apparently now he does not have any more. And actually earlier today, this is how he responded to this attempt to oust him. Let's take a look. If you throw a speaker out that has 99% of their conference that kept government open and paid the troops, I think we're in a really bad place for how we're going to run Congress. Now they're turning the floor over to the Democrats. And let's not forget that Congress still faces a November 17 deadline to fund the government. So let's see how this new change in House speakership will affect upcoming talks when it comes to budget. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that report. It's day two of what's expected to be a months-long trial for former President Trump. New York Attorney General Letitia James, who filed the financial fraud case, once campaigned on the platform that she was going to get Trump. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards is at the White House with the latest update. Judge Arthur Angeron hit the former president with a gag order on Tuesday afternoon related to a post that he made on Truth Social about a court clerk. The post was taken down after two meetings. The judge later said that if it happens again, there will be serious consequences. This morning, the state's first witness, Donald Bender, returned to the stand. Bender is an accountant who worked for the Trump Organization for decades. The state's attorney questioned the witness document by document dating back to 2011 up to 2020. Bender testified that the Trump defendants were responsible for providing the valuations contained in the financial statements. He said that he had no knowledge of whether or not they were fraudulent and that if he knew, he would not have submitted them. This testimony supports the state's contention that the Trump defendants repeatedly committed fraud by inflating the valuation of their assets. On cross-examination, the defense established that there are accounting laws that should be considered in this case, which would show that the defendants acted lawfully and that Bender should have been aware of those laws during his review. Bender admitted that he worked for the Trump Organization for at least 30 years and that the Trump Organization frequently consulted him about its entities and other business matters. The defense repeatedly questioned Bender about why he failed to alert Trump in 2017 about a significant error on the financial statement. Bender said he missed it. The former president said he will return to the court on Wednesday. Tiffany, back to you. Hunter Biden also appeared in court today, pleading not guilty to gun charges. One big question, are there political implications for his father's run for a second term in the White House? NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us with more from the courthouse in Wilmington, Delaware. For the first time, the president's son is fighting criminal charges in federal court. Hunter Biden is on the hook for three felony charges. Prosecutors argue that Hunter Biden possessed a firearm illegally while addicted to drugs and then lied about it. When he arrived at this courthouse for the arraignment at 10 a.m. this morning, that entire arraignment process took less than half an hour. And the judge says that Hunter Biden has passed multiple rounds of drug tests that he's taken since July when that original plea deal fell apart. As for the political implications for President Biden himself, Democrats on Capitol Hill have repeatedly argued that his son's actions should cast no shadow over the image of the sitting president. Meanwhile, Republicans argue that the DOJ gave Hunter Biden special treatment and slow walked the case. Hunter Biden's not on the ballot. I think the only thing the president is guilty of is, is being a father, and I mean that sincerely. If we were in a majority, nobody would be knowing anything about any of this stuff, and the Department of Justice was going to cover it up like they've been doing the last several years. And if 
DOJ and the FBI and IRS have seen and would investigate what we've seen and would do this investigation, I imagine this will be the first of many indictments for Hunter Biden. So if they are going to say there should be more charges against Hunter Biden, they don't know what they're talking about. Meanwhile, House Republicans are continuing to probe Hunter Biden's foreign business deals, trying to tie that foreign cash flow back to the president himself. Now, as for this particular case that Hunter Biden faced here in this courthouse today, his lawyers will ultimately try to dismiss the case, mainly using a recent Supreme Court ruling on guns. Reporting from Wilmington, Delaware, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Moving on to foreign policy in a phone call with allied nations, President Biden today pledged more support for Ukraine. This comes after Congress dropped aid to Ukraine from a short-term funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. Time is not our friend. We have enough funding authorities to meet Ukraine's battlefields, battlefield needs for a bit longer. But we need Congress to act to ensure that there is no disruption in our support. The White House warned that a drop in support could further embolden Russia. According to National Security Spokesperson John Kirby, Washington has enough military supplies to back Ukraine for, quote, a couple of months or so. Kirby added that most Republicans in Congress support continued aid to Ukraine. And it's not just Trump and Hunter Biden. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, was in court today as his trial began. This comes nearly a year after FTX collapsed and declared bankruptcy. We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, always great to be here, Tiffany. Don, to begin, give us the details here. Okay, so the trial is expected to last uh, around six weeks. Uh, jury selection actually began today in New York. It's expected to take up most of the day. Uh, earlier, uh, U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan told a group of 50 prospective jurors in a federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan that uh, he would ask them a few questions, you know, to try to pick a 12-member panel. He wanted to weed out any uh, prospective jurors who may be biased one way or another uh, so that it it's going to be fair to both prosecutors and Bankman Fried's defense. Uh, opening arguments will likely follow later in the week. Now, in order to get a conviction, uh, prosecutors must convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, Bankman Fried defrauded FTX's customers and that he actually knew at the time what he was doing was wrong. So if, if he is convicted and he's sentenced to the maximum punishment, that could actually mean life in prison. Um, at the same time, three former members of Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle have pleaded guilty and are set to testify against him at trial. U.S. District Attorney Damian Williams is overseeing the prosecution. He's calling this case one of the biggest frauds in the country's history. Sounds quite serious there. So what is his defense going to look like? Right. His lawyers are expected to uh, argue that Bankman-Fried uh, thought FTX was allowed to make investments with customer funds, you know, just like banks use deposits to make loans. Uh, Bankman-Fried is expected to argue that FTX's terms of service 
did not actually prohibit the exchange from using customer funds for its own purposes. That is, as long as it allowed users to withdraw their money. That's the condition. Uh, he actually has acknowledged uh, inadequate risk management, but he's denying stealing funds. His lawyers uh, have also said uh, pooling and reallocation of customer funds was a common uh, occurrence among other cryptocurrency exchange platforms as well. And on that note, what are the charges here? Yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried faces uh, seven counts, uh, including wire fraud and securities fraud. Prosecutors uh, are alleging that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried stole uh, billions of dollars from FTX customer funds for his own personal use, and that uh, he also used those funds to cover huge losses at a crypto hedge fund uh, he also controlled. Uh, and this hedge fund is called Alameda Research. The lawyer, uh, they're also... Uh, they're also saying SBF, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, defrauded investors in FTX by covering up the scheme. Um, but, you know, Tiffany, it's worth pointing out that uh, U.S. prosecutors have dropped a campaign finance charge against him because of treaty obligations to the Bahamas. That's where he was arrested. The, the campaign finance charge uh, claimed that uh, he illegally donated millions of dollars to political campaigns to supposedly buy bipartisan influence. Wow. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Tiffany. And as we've reported, Bankman Freed had been extradited from the Bahamas. Now we hear from someone who's actually done some investigating there, seeing Bankman Freed's properties up close. Epic Times reporter and producer of the film, The Shadow State, Kevin Stockland. Kevin Stockland, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me on again. Sam Bankman-Fried's trial has begun, and you've actually been down to the Bahamas to view where his company was. How does your on-the-ground reporting fit into how you view this trial and how he might be likely to respond? One of the issues that I think he's going to face uh, is that he's been really portrayed as this selfless uh, philanthropist, um, and yet they were living a very lavish lifestyle down in there. They were living in a very exclusive community on the seaside, uh, condos attached to a marina. Uh, their neighbors um, were people like Justin Timberlake uh, and Tiger Woods. So um, they were living a very lavish lifestyle. In addition, uh, some of his family members, his parents, also had uh, some real estate down there that might have been bought with FTX funds. That's what they are alleging in the bankruptcy proceedings. So it speaks to some of the misuse of money, and it may weaken his case uh, a little bit that uh, he purely had good intentions through this whole process. And on that note, how serious are the charges against him? Uh, well, they're very serious. There's seven counts of uh, securities fraud and wire fraud. Uh, they could carry sentence, sentences of up to 115 years if he's convicted on all counts and given the maximum sentence. So it could, in theory, be a life sentence, although I don't think people expect that he's going to be hit with the maximums. And zooming out a little, how will this trial impact cryptocurrencies more broadly? Um, I'm not sure that, that it will uh, tremendously. I, I think at the time it definitely uh, 
you know, resulted in a big hit on the value of cryptocurrencies. But I think a lot of the reasons that people went into them in the first place, concerns about inflation, uh, wanting to be free of a lot of, of government controls for their money, um, those have not gone away. And so there are a lot of predictions that uh, cryptocurrency will have a big resurgence in, in the next year or two. And on that note, a lot of crypto investors cite the unregulated aspect as a major draw for them. Some say this crackdown on SBF might be overreach in a way. What's your view on that? Well, I think we are going to see more regulation in the space. I think the government doesn't like having people uh, having access to money that they can't control and monitor in this way. Cryptocurrency is supposed to really be anonymous and, and outside of the control of things like the Federal Reserve, uh, and the government isn't too crazy about that. Um, you know, this case is... Uh, to me, it's very interesting, not only because of the potential fraud that was committed, but because of the massive political connections and donations of Sam Bankman-Fried. He was the largest single donor to the Biden election campaign, giving more than $5 million there. He also gave another $70 million to various election campaigns, most of them on the Democrat side, but a few Republicans, and then another $40 million to various political PACs. So, uh, and as well, he reportedly had a private meeting with uh, Gary Gensler, uh, who is uh, in charge of the SEC, the primary regulator of cryptocurrencies. So his political connections are going to be a very big issue through this. And given this interconnected web, if you will, throughout your reporting, what was your biggest takeaway in investigating SBF? Um, you know, this trial is going to be difficult because he has a lot of inside information, not only from his donations, but his meetings. He was frequently called upon to consult on, on how to regulate the crypto markets. And so I think a lot of people are very nervous about what he might have to say throughout this trial. And as interested as we are in the stories of him and the lavish lifestyle they lived and, and the you know allegations of fraud and whatnot, um, it's really, I think, the political side of the story that we're most interested in and that we may not get to hear as much about as we would like. Quite fascinating indeed. Well, Kevin Stockland, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Still to come, mail-in ballots are stirring up controversy again, and this time in court. A law firm is suing over absentee ballots. Find out what it could mean for voters. And a former homeless man who's now a recovery advocate has a new approach to San Francisco's homelessness and drug crisis. Find out what he's suggesting. And TikTok under investigation after Chinese tech executives transferred to the company, some directly from Beijing to the U.S. Senators demand answers soon. Find out more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. Another nationwide strike is on the horizon. Just as Hollywood writers are heading back to their studios, more than 75,000 workers at Kaiser Permanente are threatening to walk out. According to union officials, this could be the largest healthcare strike in recent U.S. history. Kaiser is the largest nonprofit private health provider in the U.S. Workers said that the company is intentionally understaffing to cut costs. They accused Kaiser of committing unfair labor practices. 
Workers' contract with the company expired Saturday. The coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions demanded better pay and benefits, but failed to reach an agreement. If Kaiser executives don't take actions, workers will join the picket lines Wednesday morning. The strike will target facilities in California, Colorado, Maryland, Oregon, Washington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Should mail-in ballots require a witness signature? A new lawsuit argues that the witness requirement burdens voters, while others say its purpose is to ensure election integrity. NTD's Jason Perry brings us the latest. In Wisconsin, mail-in ballots are back in the spotlight, and this time the focus is on the witness requirement for those ballots. On Monday, a national Democratic law firm sued the Wisconsin Elections Commission. That law firm, Elias Law Group, claims the witness requirement burdens voters and violates the Federal Voting Rights Act. The lawsuit was filed in federal court and the firm is representing four Wisconsin voters. Elias Law Group said this in a statement. The witness requirement forces absentee voters to find a qualified witness to attest to their ability to vote and puts voters at risk of disenfranchisement due to minor technical errors or omissions related to the witness attestation. Those who support the witness requirement say its purpose is to ensure election integrity and prevent election fraud. Also in Wisconsin, another controversy involving mail-in ballots. Last year, Wisconsin State Representative Janelle Branchin was shocked to find three military ballots in her home mailbox. The ballots were all addressed to Holly, but with three different last names. The representative said she believed someone was trying to point out to her how easy it is to get mail-in ballots in Wisconsin. And on Monday, an election watchdog group, Wisconsin Voter Alliance, and two others filed a complaint against the Wisconsin Elections Commission related to that issue. They allege its policy not to identify the identity of overseas absentee voters violates federal election law. Both of these election issues are significant being in the swing state of Wisconsin. The last two presidential elections in Wisconsin were decided by less than a percentage point. Jason Perry, NTD News. Turning to California, open drug use and addiction struggles lurk within one of America's landmark cities. One formerly homeless man and now a recovery advocate, Tom Wolf, shares his idea for a solution with the Epic Times' Steve Ispass. Homelessness in San Francisco. There's reports that it's one of the highest concentration of homeless in the country. What do you see on the streets? Well, first of all, those reports are correct. Uh, we have somewhere between eight and 20,000 homeless people in San Francisco. When you count all the people living in RVs and in their cars, et cetera, yeah, it, it, somewhere between eight and 20,000. Law enforcement presented 303 cases, this is according to a Chronicle article, 303 cases of um, drug users who were pointed out to a treatment program, yet only nine of them accepted the treatment. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Addiction is an imperfect disease. Recovery is an imperfect way to treat that disease. If the individual happens to also be struggling with drug addiction, which it turns out about 90% of the time they are, uh, they need to be referred to drug court and mandated into treatment as a way to give them an opportunity to avoid going to jail and being held accountable. If I was that guy and I got arrested, right, and I, was, and I knew I was only going to be in jail for about two days, and I was addicted to fentanyl, and I knew that I could go back out to the street, I could get fentanyl for $5, all I have to do is go to Walgreens and steal some makeup and then go and sell it on the street, 
to make enough money to buy my fentanyl, right? And if I just kind of lay low, probably no one's gonna mess with me. Why would I stop? Why? And if you know also that at the end of the month you're gonna get a check or you're gonna get your general assistance relief money, so then you'll have $687 that you can use to buy drugs. I think you bring up a very good point that I haven't heard a lot before, and that is mandating drug treatment. Can you talk more about it? What would it, what would it take? Well, first it would require just a general change in ideology and the mm -hmm. direction that we're trying to take in San Francisco. There's a large belief among kind of the among harm reduction organizations and some of the more radical harm reduction folks out, out across the country and really the world that mandated treatment doesn't work. Think of it like this. If you have 8,000 or 20,000 homeless people on the street and you have 1,000 drug dealers serving them fentanyl for $5, right, and they become addicted <coughs> and, and then they become so desperate that they're willing to resort to crime, we can do one of two things, right? We can either remove all the drug dealers and if you do that, probably 80% of the problems San Francisco experiences goes away, right? Or we can not remove the drug dealers and usher as many people as we can into treatment. The reality is, is that we probably need to do both things. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your being here. And now back to D.C. There's a new face on Capitol Hill. Former union leader LaFonza Butler today swearing in as California's newest senator. Governor Gavin Newsom appointed her to replace the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. Shortly after Feinstein's passing, Newsom promised to name a black woman to the upper chamber. With her appointment, Democrats maintain their one-seat majority in the Senate. Butler is a longtime union leader and pro-abortion advocate. She previously served as a campaign advisor to then-California Senator Kamala Harris, as well as to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in their bids for the White House. Congressman Henry Cuellar speaking out after being assaulted in Washington, D.C. Multiple attackers with guns carjacked the Texas Democrat last night. I looked at one with a gun, another with a gun, up the one behind me. Uh, so they said they wanted my car. I said, sure, you got to keep calm in those, those situations. And then they took off. They uh, recovered the car. They recovered everything. I do want to thank the uh, Capitol Police, and I certainly want to thank the uh, Metro Police. Uh, I'm a big law enforcement person. I got three brothers in law enforcement, so I certainly appreciate the, uh, the good work that the police did last night. There have been no arrests so far. Last night's carjacking was the second assault in D.C. this year on a member of Congress. In February, Democratic Representative Angie Craig of Minnesota was assaulted in her apartment building. She suffered bruises while escaping serious injury. And multiple congressional staffers were attacked in the district this year. One aide was brutally attacked, leaving the congressional baseball game in June. Another was attacked in broad daylight in March. A group of U.S. senators is going to China. Their goal to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will lead the bipartisan delegation. Schumer's office confirmed the plans today. Senators will also go to Japan and South Korea. The trip's goal is to advance U.S. economic and national security interests in the region. Senators will meet with government and business leaders from each country. They also hope to meet with Chinese leader Xi. The trip will follow recent visits to the communist nation from multiple Biden administration officials. 
the bipartisan delegation will be co-led by Republican Senator Mike Crapo. The trip is planned for next week. And senators are investigating TikTok after it hired high-profile executives from parent company ByteDance. Some of them moved to the U.S. directly from Beijing, even bringing their own Chinese teams with them. TikTok for a long time has been viewed by many as a spy tool for the Chinese Communist Party. Governments all over the world are worried the CCP is using it to gather data on its citizens. Senators Marsha Blackburn and Richard Blumenthal sent a letter to TikTok today asking about these executive transfers from ByteDance. Since ByteDance is a Chinese company, under Chinese law, the CCP has significant control over it. In the letter, the senators say they are concerned these personnel changes undermine the security of U.S. data. The letter includes questions to the company, such as how many ByteDance employees TikTok has hired and whether TikTok has disclosed these actions to a U.S. government committee. The senators want answers by October the 13th. When we return, zooming into witness testimony given at Trump's civil fraud case, a battle of property valuations that could inflict a heavy blow on a real estate empire. It's X versus X and the latest federal lawsuit. An advertisement agency called X Social Media is suing Elon Musk for rebranding Twitter to X Corp. And reports of an ad-free Instagram for $14 a month. Europe could be seeing it soon. Details on this and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Congressman Kevin McCarthy has been ousted as House Speaker, a first in U.S. history. Eight Republicans joined all Democrats in voting him out. Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to gun charges in a federal court in Delaware. The president's son is accused of possessing a gun illegally while addicted to drugs and lying about it. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried's trial kicked off with jury selection. He is accused of defrauding customers, and the trial is expected to last about six weeks. Former President Trump testified in court for the second day of his New York fraud trial. The judge issued a gag order against posting information about his staff. And for another perspective on Trump's civil fraud case, we had a chance to speak with Paul Kaminar, lead counsel with the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul Kaminar, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Trump's civil fraud case has entered day two. The first witness has testified. How damaging was his testimony? Well, I, I don't think it, it was. I mean, the... Uh, prosecutor or here the uh, attorney general of New York rather it's a civil case by the way not a criminal case uh, is trying to establish that uh, Trump and his uh, sons and the Trump organization overvalued their uh, properties uh, when they applied for loans from the banks and insurers and so forth uh, and and uh, I, I don't think they have a real case here because it's uh, clear that 
nobody was defrauded out of any money. Uh, the banks were all repaid. Uh, and, and in terms of the valuation, it's common practice in the lending industry that the banks do their own evaluation uh, of the assets to see if it's got enough security to cover uh, the loan if the borrower should default. Uh, and, and even uh, the Trump organization in their appraisals had a disclaimer on their own uh, valuation saying, hey, this is our valuation, but you know, do your own. This is not uh, guaranteed that this is what it, it may very well be. Uh, and, and so that, that's where it is. And, and it's even clear that in some cases, uh, the Trump organization may have undervalued some of their properties. For example, uh, the New York Attorney General, uh, and I think even the court said that the Mar-a-Lago property was worth only $28 million. Uh, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, there's a property uh, almost next door a, a couple acres that are vacant that are worth 50 to $70 million. So, so I don't think they have a bunch of a case, but you know, they have this uh, partisan uh, attorney general and also a very partisan judge to deal with. And Paul, given that this is a civil and not a criminal case, how should we read Trump's presence there? Why would he choose to show up when he doesn't have to? Well, I think he's trying to uh, make a statement to, to show that he thinks that this whole civil proceeding uh, is is really, uh, as he put it, uh, uh, a scam and, and, and a sham. Uh, and and uh, I think he wants to make that point uh, with the media uh, and, and, and be there to see what's actually going on. Uh, you're right, he doesn't have to be there, but I think he feels that uh, his presence is warranted uh, in order to make this point. So, uh, you know, it's he's still facing up to $250 million in a civil fine, and also the judges uh, revoking the licenses of the Trump Organization to do business in New York. So this is basically uh, what we call the, a, a criminal, I mean, a corporate death penalty. So even though it's not a criminal case, it, it, it does... Uh, go to the heart of his uh, businesses and is very much as serious as a criminal case would be. And on the note of Trump, he is calling this a rigged trial and a fraudulent trial. What's at stake here for Trump if his appeals are unsuccessful? Well, first of all, they have to, you know, find him civilly guilty for this. And then if they do, uh, he will appeal. Uh, but uh, at the trial level, which is where the case is now, uh, it would involve, if he's found uh, guilty in the Trump organization, of uh, up to $250 million in a civil fine and also having uh, the license in New York uh, uh, basically revoked so that he and, and his sons uh, cannot uh, do business or, or be directors of other companies in New York. So. He's facing some serious uh, uh, you know, charges here, uh, but I think even if he's found guilty, uh, he'll have an appeal, and I think his chances on appeal will be a lot better than before this judge.
Paul Kaminar, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. X, formerly known as Twitter, is getting sued by a legal marketing company with a similar name. The marketing company claims the social media giant's new name infringes on its branding and leads to consumer confusion. Here's Entity's Eileen Eng with more. X Social Media is suing XCore, formerly known as Twitter. The Florida-based company sued Elon Musk's company in federal court in Florida on Monday. They claim Musk's new name for Twitter infringes on their trademark by incorporating the letter X. Musk began the rebranding back in July, which has caused some consumer confusion. The case appears to be the first of what could be numerous trademark disputes with Musk's company over the letter X, which is commonly used in tech branding. X is included in hundreds of federal trademarks owned by companies including Microsoft and Meta platforms. XCore applied for its own U.S. trademarks covering the letter last month. According to its website, X Social Media is an ad agency focused on mass tort litigation. The lawsuit said the agency has used the X Social Media name since 2016 and owns a federal trademark covering it. It has invested more than $400 million in Facebook advertising to reach potential clients. The company said Twitter's rebrand has already confused customers and caused it to lose revenue. X Social Media asked the court to force Musk's company to stop using the X name and requested an unspecified amount of money damages. Ad-free Instagram for $14 a month. Reports say Meta is looking to charge Europeans for this subscription plan. Could it come to the U.S.? NTD's Fake Quarter has more. Meta is proposing an ad-free version of Instagram for Europeans, according to the Wall Street Journal. Europeans may get two choices, either pay the equivalent of $14 a month for ad-free Instagram or continue using the platform for free by seeing targeted ads. This proposal is a response to EU regulations, which may restrict Meta's ability to show targeted ads. Uh, ad-free Instagram would be great. Uh, most of us get way too many ads and find it really distracting. Robbie Kelman-Baxter is the author of The Forever Transaction and The Membership Economy. Even though she likes the idea, she doesn't know whether it'll happen in the U.S. They're going to prefer the, the most revenue that's allowed in, in the country. So unless regulators come down hard uh, on privacy protection... Uh, I don't know that they'll be that motivated to do it. Ads are crucial for Meta's business. A move by European regulators to restrict them would endanger its main revenue stream. I don't know if everyone uh, realizes the importance of ads. I mean, that's that's what keeps the lights on for these for these companies. You know, the servers, the uh, the staff, all of that that um, that maintains the platform. You know, that's covered by by advertising revenue. Chris Alexander helped write the first ever social media guidance for the military. He says the ad-free subscription tier may work. People seem to be willing to spend more on experiences, and they've also become dependent on these platforms. Meta may roll out this ad-free version in the coming months, according to the Wall Street Journal. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, a former collegiate athlete turns to advocate for fairness in women's sports now that her younger sister is involved. And a masterpiece lost for centuries discovered in a king's collection. Our reporter has more on the work by one of the most famous 17th century female painters. More shortly here on NTD News.
welcome back. A former swimmer who thought women's fairness in sports issues were behind her now stands up for her sister. NTD's Dave Martin on what drives her to speak out. It was just a year and a half ago that University of Penn swimmer Leah Thomas, formerly known as Will, won the women's 500-yard freestyle event at the NCAA Championships. Now, the victory made national headlines as Thomas, whose ranking jumped from 462nd in the men's division to first in the women's, became a hero to most in the national media. But for those women who were in the competition and had to change in the locker room with him, the feeling was anything but. I wish you could have seen the faces and the tears on the pool deck at the NCAA meet. You know, I stood on the sidelines. I didn't directly compete with Leah Thomas, but I was there and I changed in the locker rooms with him. I, I was in that environment and I saw the faces. I saw the tears. I saw the disappointment. Caitlin Wheeler, who was a swimmer for the University of Kentucky for the last four years, is now in grad school, yet her experiences with biological men coming into women's sports, as well as our locker rooms, didn't really end upon graduation. I have a little sister who's still swimming. And she uh, had an instance where uh, men were changing in the locker rooms at her swim team. She practiced at a YMCA. And when she spoke up about it, she was removed from her swim team. She was actually banned from a YMCA of all places. Caitlin's sister, Abigail, who's six years younger, actually got more than 200 signatures in a petition to keep men out of their locker room before the Y banned her instead. The two incidents made Caitlin realize the issue wasn't going away, even though her swimming career finally had. And so I realized that I think it's time to join the fight because hopefully that will encourage more people to stand up and speak out. Caitlin has joined friend and former University of Kentucky teammate Riley Gaines at Gaines Leadership Institute as an ambassador. The lifelong swimmer plans to share her messages on college campuses as well as introduce legislator in her home state of Illinois that keeps men out of their sports as well as their locker rooms. It's definitely hard to do in the state of Illinois since there's some people that are very obstinate about it, but I'm we're really encouraged to see the people that I have spoken with. They're not, you know, they do agree. They, they, they agree that men should not be changing in women's locker rooms. Men should not be in women's sports. It's about protecting our, our children. It's protecting um, women in reality. Now, advocates like Caitlin have their work cut out for them. Since 2020, just 23 states have passed similar laws banning transgender athletes from competing in women's sports. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News. A 104-year-old lady is setting new records. She just became the world's oldest person to tandem skydive. It was wonderful. It was a nice, peaceful I had to, had to keep myself awake so I could see the, see the scenery. Dorothy Hefner didn't start skydiving until she was 100. She made her first ever jump on her 100th birthday. On Sunday, she set a new record as the oldest person to make a tandem jump. Her message to people is simple. It's nothing to be afraid of. Just do it. And a rare masterpiece painting has been rediscovered in the collection of King Charles III after it was lost for hundreds of years. Conservationists have now spent five years restoring the work by a 17th century painter. A lost masterpiece found. This is Susanna and the Elders by Artemisia Gentileschi. 
The painting was part of the collection of Charles I, the English monarch, who championed this 17th-century Italian female artist. It's recorded in a number of different inventories since that time, but during the 18th century, at some point, it lost its attribution to Artemisia Gentileschi. It was also heavily discoloured by historic conservation treatments and discoloured varnish. It was only when curators carried out research into Charles I's collection and read references to the painting in historical documents that they realised they had something special on their hands. The newly rediscovered painting sits alongside a self-portrait by the artist. Artemisia Gentileschi was one of the most important artists of the 17th century, and what made her so unusual is that she was a woman working in a very male-dominated artistic world. The story behind the painting is from the Bible. Two elderly men are spying on a young woman named Susanna while bathing. They attempt to entrap her for sex. When she refuses, she is put on trial for adultery. Susanna was eventually vindicated. The interesting link here is perhaps with Artemisia's own experience. She was raped at the age of 17 by another artist working in her father's studio, and she was also put um, in the witness box and tortured to prove that she was telling the truth that she was actually raped. So it seems to have held a particular relevance to Artemisia. Conservators have spent the last five years restoring this painting to its former glory. They removed centuries of surface dirt, old varnish and layers of paint that were not original. There was also damage to repair. It was almost impossible to see the original paint. It was so covered in very yellow, obscuring varnish and you could see that there was an awful lot of overpaint. There were also some significant findings during the restoration. One of the most important moments was when the historic lining, so a backing canvas that had been applied, the back of the picture was removed as part of this conservation treatment and it revealed the CR brand, the Charles I brand that marked it out as being in his collection. The painting is now hanging in the galleries of Windsor Castle. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.